can find your way back to your seat, we will sink in. Uh, much love to all of you. Uh, it's it's good to to gather with you all. Um, my name is Wally. I think I've met most everyone, but uh, I'm the teaching pastor here. Thrilled to be with you. We last week. Last week, as we continued our series, The Songs of Christmas, we spent uh, our opening time uh, within the teaching, we did some trivia, we did some fun trivia around the nativity scene, and that was lots of fun. Um, So we're going to do a little trivia up top, but it will be uh, asking some questions about where we have been so far as it pertains to the songs of Christmas. And last week I had uh, Skittles uh, flavored candy canes or the peppermint ones, and this week just peppermint. Uh, We're going to keep... Uh, Next... Good. Goodness. Uh, Christmas Eve... um, I saw they have Starburst uh, flavored candy canes, so we might go that route for Christmas Eve. We'll see. I just got booed, so I'm not sure that I ought to treat you. Um, so we, uh, this is our fourth week of the Songs of Christmas, so we have been looking at getting behind Christmas songs, carols, hymns, if you will. So my question, my first one is, can someone name one of the three songs that we have unpacked already? A Little Town of Bethlehem. That was true. That was, was that last week? That was last week. Well, there you go. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What's that? Hark the, Hark the Herald, Sue and Luann. Yeah, see? Lovely. Uh-huh. And Oh, come all you faithful. Oh, Jeannie had that. Good job. Come all you faithful. Oh, that one's That one's Oh, that one's broken too. It's 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 what? Silent night today count. Silent night today. Joy to the world. and we sing joy to the world so yes boy I can't you're running the slides and you got the wrong answer Um, Hillary sorry it's uh yes so this morning then is joy to the world that we're going to look at and this has been so much fun digging behind these hymns and carols. So uh, we'll, we'll jump in to Joy to the World, an English Christmas carol uh, written in 1719 by the English minister and hymn writer Isaac Watts with its lyrics as a Christian reinterpretation of Psalm 98. So what I want to do is I want to read Psalm 98 with you having joy to the world in mind. Because this was uh, Mr. Watts. It was his uh, reinterpretation of a favorite psalm of his. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness in the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, the shofar. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Whoo! Now, the song had at least four different arrangements, first published in 1719 in Watts's collection, the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. That was his uh, book of songs. And applied to the foundations of what it means to be Christian for acts of Christian worship. Here's what I find most fascinating about this, is that Watts didn't write the hymn to originally be a Christmas carol. As the lyrics, especially in light of Psalm 98, do not reflect the virgin birth of Jesus, but he wrote the song, what the song is about to him was the Christ's second coming. We made it a Christmas song. In the late 18th century, Joy to the World was printed with music several times, but the tunes were unrelated to the one commonly sung Today, once again, we're not traditionalists. We think we are. You're not. Uh, I just like doing that to the peoples. Um, the carol most commonly sung today is to an 1848 arrangement by the American composer Lowell Mason. Mason's 1848 publication of the current tune was the fourth version to have been published. We're singing the fourth version, and the song we sung today was who knows what version, uh, like number. The original version, though, was titled Antioch and is often credited to a guy named George Friedrich Handel because musically the first four notes of Joy to the World are the same as the first four notes in the chorus, Lift Up Your Head, from Handel's renowned piece, Messiah which premiered in 1742, performed in Dublin, Ireland at the New Music Hall. Mason was known as a great admirer of Handel. So after years of trial and testing, sampling and singing, since the 20, 20th century, Joy to the World has become the most published Christmas hymn in North America, even though it was not written as a Christmas hymn. Come on. That's a good time. 
So this, though, sets up the tension for our world today because, yes, joy is meant to be the engine of Christmas. But in order to experience the full ecstasy of joy, the joy that might include happiness, but most certainly transcends the circumstantial nature of it, we have to first taste a hope that has traveled through the refining fires of struggle. And I find that best revealed in the story of Jacob wrestling with the divine, which leads him to receive a new name, and his new name will become Israel. And Israel means, I think it's our first slide, Israel means one who wrestles with the divine and prevails. Now, that should, in some ways, that sound odd to us. Well, what do you mean? To wrestle with God and I prevail, you prevail, the rabbis assert, but of course, because how can one lose when choosing to engage and wrestle with the divine? It's not that we defeat the divine, but we get to dance in celebration of that which is defeated in us when we wrestle with the divine. Come on. Now that is pure joy. Yet we live in a world and a culture uh, that wants joy without the wrestling, without the struggle, which is understandable and we get. But too often this leads to reading or teaching the gospel accounts of Jesus' life in a very sanitized way. The modern American church has largely been inoculated to the political force found in the life of Jesus, specifically found in the birth narratives. So I'd love to pray, and then we've got some work to do. Are you with me? Yeah. Gracious God, you are good, and you are here now with us, inviting us to have ears to hear hearts to understand your incredible, powerful, eternal love, grace, passion, mercy, and invitation. So God, may the meditation, the posture of my heart, the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Now, Matthew and Luke's writings have widely been captured because they're the two that write of the birth narrative. They've widely been captured by buttery soft nativity scenes and children's books written from the perspectives of the cuddly farm animals who keep the eight-pound, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sweet baby Jesus cozily wrapped in swaddling clothes. Yet the first 20 verses of chapter 2 of Luke are a political lightning rod, setting fire to the strongest empire the world had ever known to that point, Rome. But this is not a militaristic, destructive fire, but a shalom-producing, refining fire, which leads to joy. 
The first verse alone has Caesar marching out and announcing a collision of two very different political and religious worldviews. The first verse of Luke chapter 2 says, In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Big deal, the text mentions this Augustus fella. But that's because modern readers tend to see Caesar Augustus, who was the most powerful figure in the world at the time, merely serving as a literary device to assist Mary and Joseph in their travels from Nazareth to Bethlehem, as if he is simply calling the kids in from recess at school. We either take for granted or are oblivious to the context that provides the birth of Jesus as the anointed, what do we say, king or savior of the world, in quotes, because it's juxtaposed to the current king, Herod, and the current savior, yup, Caesar Augustus. They called him savior. For someone to then write and read aloud the birth narratives of Jesus in the first few centuries of the common era would easily be political treason and grounds for arrest and possible execution. A heavenly army of angels announced Jesus not just as Messiah the Lord, but as Savior as well. Now while the word Messiah sits more firmly in the Jewish community, the titles Lord and Savior would both be confrontive and subversive of the Roman world and Caesar. Augustus had already been firmly situated and praised as Lord and Savior of the world. Now this word Savior in the Greek where we find it, it's soter, go ahead and say soter. Soter means deliverer and preserver. Now, here is what is so fascinating. Savior is not a major title for Jesus in the New Testament. Luke is the singular one who actually uses this word in the synoptic gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the only one. Matthew and Mark do not use the title Savior. And Luke provides it in chapter 2, verse 11, usually displayed as a hallmark weeble-wobble consumer product. One of the most common arguments today for why people don't want to have anything to do with the church, which I have mentioned, is because it's too political. A more accurate diagnosis is how pastors and churches are too bipartisan and nationalistic. But do not miss that the birth narratives alone are deeply political. Sadly, a significant amount of tradition has simply been built on social commentary, which serves to create a warm fireplace decoration while we clink our glasses of eggnog and sing our Christmas carols. But if we look past the shiny veneer, we can begin to see two very different worlds at odds, two very different ways of ruling 
and a very uncomfortable invitation to choose which one of these kingdoms, these two very different kingdoms, will be our way in the world, then and now. So historian and scholar Richard Horsley pushes us into the conflict. Next slide. As we stand before the idyllic Christmas scenes of the Christ child in the manger, adored by Mary and surrounded by happy shepherds and the gentle ox and ass, political conflict may be the furthest thing from our minds. We are vaguely aware that Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds are humble folk and probably poor as well, and that the, in quotes, three kings who bring such valuable gifts are wealthy. Our usual hearing of the Christmas story, however, misses or perhaps avoids the political, economic, as well as the religio-cultural conflict that is implicit through the stories and that at points even comes explicitly to expression. Come on, my favorite Christmas book is The Liberation of Christmas by Richard Horsley. Not very big, but one page and you'll need a nap. It is dense and stunning and I just take this thing apart every Christmas. Love sinking into it because it is unleashing stuff we desperately need. And because first and foremost, this holiday season is about being rooted in joy, I want to dig into the context surrounding the birth of Christmas and ask the question, what did good news mean back then in its original context? Which I believe will help us discover or rediscover why this brilliant subversive story is more relevant than ever. Are you with me? Now, to put a shovel on the ground, let's turn to what is understood as the Apostle Paul's earliest letter. Understood to be written about 20 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Paul writes to the church in Galatia and says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons or adoption to sonship. Paul is using first century inheritance language, speaking how the work of the Christ, what the work is doing in our hearts that laws and rules cannot do. So Paul summarized the depth of the incarnation of Christ in Jesus, which raises some questions. Uh, What special historical conditions made first century Palestine the right place and the right time? Why is this that Paul is speaking of the fullness of time? And what can this tell us about God, ourselves, and the world? Just some questions that come to mind. So, This is important. Those taking notes, don't miss this. Historically, scholars point out there are four aspects to celebrating that which has come to us is of the divine. What Paul calls the fullness of time, or what in the 19th century was coined as manifest destiny, which has since been wildly hijacked. It's these four things 
This is what they say has to surround this divine happening. A heavenly decree, an ancient lineage, prophetic promise, and a divine victory. When these four elements take place, we know something of the divine is happening among us. This is historically what they have gone all the way back, and we will sink in. So, when these four elements collide, happen, it would be declared that the one who is to come has arrived. And upon arrival, this divine one shall be called, ready? Next slide. Titles, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, the one who wipes away the sin of the world, Son of God, Savior of all mankind. There is no name, no other name under heaven by which one can be saved than that of Caesar. Caesar. Because all of these titles and phrases that we just read were bestowed upon Caesar Augustus. Because at the time of Jesus' birth, they had already been given to or spoken of the Roman emperor at least a couple decades before Jesus' birth. All were given to Augustus. So on Friday... A couple days ago, I was at one of my doctors, and he asked, he goes, so are you teaching this Sunday? And I said, I, I am, yep. And he said, what are you teaching on? Daring, isn't he? Uh, now, I mean this. I took 30 seconds and said the four aspects of a divine coming that understood to happen then I mentioned how all of these four things were applied to Caesar Augustus decades before Jesus. I had to assist him picking his jaw up off the ground. I kid you not. And he said, wait, whoa. It's like it's set up as a competition, he says to me. And I'll tell you my response to him later. Which means we need to return to history class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This week, we're going to get a more thorough picture of how it came to be that Caesar Augustus became the world's most powerful leader and the one who is honored for bringing about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. We begin by filling in some gaps that we started last week. In 44 BCE, before Common Era, Julius Caesar was on the Roman Senate and carried the most amount of power. History tells us that two other senators, Brutus and Cassius, led 40 senators to have Julius Caesar assassinated. Soon after his death, a comet shone in the sky for seven consecutive days, so they pay attention to creation. And astronomers took note that this was the brightest comet to have ever shown. The court poet Virgil declared that this comet was Julius Caesar ascending to the right hand of the high god Zeus. 
Two years after this, in 42 BCE, after his assassination, the Roman Senate agreed with this claim and officially recognized that Julius Caesar was to be considered a god on earth, even in death. And so should, because of this, have a salad and haircut named after him. <laughs> You're welcome for that dad and pastor joke. <laughs> That's me, the Senate didn't declare that. Uh, now, in a quick, quick rewind though, in 47 BCE, three years before his assassination, Julius Caesar began an affair, had a love affair with Elizabeth Taylor, also known as Cleopatra. Um, so this is before Mark Antony had an affair with her. And Cleopatra gave birth to a son of Julius Caesar, and they named him Caesarian. Caesarian means little Caesar or king of kings. Yeah. After Julius's death, Caesarian was recognized as the son of God, but he was mysteriously murdered at the age of 17, 11 days after his mom and Mark Antony committed their double suicide. Although historians cannot agree on who killed Caesarian, they know that it was politically motivated. Interestingly, Julius Caesar had put into his will that is uh, uh, the adoption of his great nephew, Octavian, who at the age of 19 would then become emperor of Rome. He at that point would claim and promote all of the titles that we had on screen and all of the phrases, and he would say, these are of me. That he is one worthy of worship and given authority over all humanity, a way that they all then rallied around and said, we recognize Caesar Augustus. He would take that name, which is the divine Caesar. He is divine. That's the check mark in providing Augustus's, ready, ancient lineage. He is the son of the son of God. So now we dig into the three other aspects that determine a person to be divinely appointed and empowered. Soon after Julius' death, the court poet, court poet Virgil, he wrote the Aeneid. So that's what someone will look at. The Aeneid was what Rome treated as their New Testament. The Aeneid was their New Testament. He prophetically proclaimed this, that the turning of the ages is near at hand. The divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited is on his way. In 17 BC then, when uh, Augustus saw a strange star in the sky, he said the cosmic hour had come and he inaugurated, Caesar Augustus inaugurated a 12-day celebration and he called it Advent. Adopting Virgil's declaration as the prophetic promise, check, that he is the one who is to come. So now we need a heavenly decree. We get from Horace. Next slide. Horace and Odes. Thine age, O Caesar, has brought back fertile crops to the fields. You have wiped away our sins. 
As long as Caesar is the guardian of the state, neither civil dissension nor violence shall banish peace. Published in 13 BCE. As further evidence of this decree, we have this inscription that was found in Priene, which is now modern-day Turkey. Hint, hint, you come on a trip, we're going to go to Priene. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. This is where the uh, calendar changed. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus. Think the fullness of time is what he is speaking about. Who being sent to us and our descendants as what? Soter. Has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earliest times, earlier times, the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of what? Good news concerning him. Written in 9 BCE, found, can be seen in Priene today. Tucked within this announcement is a phrase that is commonly used by Christians. Good news. That word in the Greek is euangelion, and it means gospel, and it's where we get the terms evangelism and evangelical. Good news. Spoken of, accredited to, Caesar Augustus. But so we are crystal clear. Caesar and the empire's message was good news for only some. The middle class who were willing to uh, play nice with the empire could live in relative comfortableness, but it was only the elite of society and the Romans who this was good news for. If you opposed the way of Rome, or you are of the lower class, then each day is just wondering, will today be my last? Ovid highlights that Augustus shares with the Roman mythological god Jupiter. So Romans have Jupiter, who is equal to the Greek god Zeus, and was known as the father of the gods. So Augustus was understood as the incarnation of Jupiter, or God on earth. So in Luke's birth narrative of Jesus, we are introduced to Augustus as a way of contrasting. There is Augustus, and there is this Jesus. One of the central slogans for the Roman Empire was peace through military victory meaning peace through might or strength. Once again, Virgil in the Aeneid says this, You, O Roman, remember to rule the nations with might, 
This will be your genius to impose the way of peace, to spare the conquered and crush the proud. Listen to that language. To impose the way of peace, spare the conquered if they come trembling and kneel before you, you can say fine. If they stand up, you crush them and destroy them. In other words, militarily devastate them so they confess, ready, Caesar is Lord. And if they don't confess, subject them to slavery or pin them to a giant wooden contraption that the Persians invented and the Romans perfected called crucifixion. Now, another major first century historian, Tacitus, wrote extensively about the collision of Rome and this small, odd, yet rapidly growing group that called themselves little Christs or Christians. Tacitus says this, All men have to bow to their betters. It had been decreed by the gods that with the Roman people should rest the decision what to give and what to take away. They rob, butcher, plunder, and they call it empire. And where they make a desolation, they call it peace. That's how it was spoken of Rome. And then this annals, he wrote uh, a history of the Roman Empire from the reign of Tiberius to that of Nero, which covers 14 CE to 68 CE. So Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus is kind of living his life. This was written uh, between 115 and 120 CE. For Caesar Augustus, he believed subjection by military conquest was the way to rule. Again, Tacitus writes of how Augustus expanded the Roman Empire. Next. For miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Augustus said himself in his writings that it was not about destruction, but his goal was to terrorize and instill fear. To Rome, peace and military victory were literally two sides of the same coin. Next slide. Here's the coin. On one side it says the divine Augustus, the divine Caesar. On the other side, a picture of this is how we get to peace. We will militarily destroy you. We will propagate this through our money. Imagine having money and it's telling a story and it's in your face. Next slide is another coin that also speaks of the, the Caesar being anointed as the divine. This is a decree being put out on one side of the divine on the other side of the coin. You propagate your message by putting it out there. And to complete the four aspects of the divinely appointed one, we have Augustus's divine victory when he was still known as Octavian in 31 BCE, known as the Battle of Actium in which he defeated Mark Antony. Because here's the thing, for about three generations prior to that victory, 
The cities and peoples of the Eastern Mediterranean had been subjected to continuous political conflict and chaos, both in trying to subdue the rising Parthian Empire in the East and the empire-wide decade-long Roman Civil War. The Roman Republic was tearing itself apart and the whole world with it then. So his victory at Actium finally brought about what people said is peace and order to the world for the first time in anyone's memory. But again, when peace is brought by military might, then peace depends on which side of the sword you are on, right? Deep breath. That's a little bit to take in. Now, in the midst of that context, we hold the writings of what we call the Bible. The context helps us better understand the Bible as an expansive library of writings that are telling one big story in the midst of all of this going on. So when we read in the Gospel of Mark, the first verse, this, when we read this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do we not read that differently now? Whoa! Because we just go, ah! What? The beginning of the Galleon of Jesus the Anointed One, who is the Son of God. Good luck walking away from writing that and saying that out loud. Are you with me? Now, how about the four aspects surrounding the divinely appointed one? In Luke 2, 10 to 11, we have our heavenly decree. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim what? Euangelion. To you, which will be great joy to who? All people. A what? A soter is born to you today in the city of David who is Messiah the Lord. What? Isaiah 56.1 The prophetic promise. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice, do righteousness for my... Now ready? That word salvation is the word Yeshua. Which in the New Testament we find to be the name Jesus. My Yeshua is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Come on. And the ancient lineage is found in our favorite parts of the Bible. We call them genealogies. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 give us our ancient lineage. The divine victory is incarnation, the divine born as human who defeats sin and death. The divine saying the affirmation of materiality and flesh has been good since in the beginning when God said it is good and he comes and affirms that and then says, oh, this thing of sin and death, I will conquer that, take that in, which we call Easter. So, a growing amount of people began to speak of Jesus as Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the one in whose birth begins the Euangelion, 
the one who takes away the sin of the world, singular, all of it. There is no name under heaven in which one can be saved than that of Yeshua. <laughs> Here's the really, really important judo move. Jesus' message, though, will be the last shall be first and the first last. So there is temporary and false power through military intimidation or there is power embodied by grace and peace found through sacrificial love, not violence. There is serving rather than being served. This is the divine way of love and it is a threat to all things empire. Are you with me? The night when Mary gives birth to Jesus the Christ is anything but silent and sweet, calm and pageant-like. The world was tense and the message behind the birth was loaded with political, sociological, and eternal implications. So now to the response to my doctor friend. I said, yeah, there are two ways being put before us. It was raised the profound and confrontational question, which way is the way and which way will you choose? Will you choose the way of empire or will you choose the way of eternal love? And as I said it on Friday, I watched his eyes fill with tears. And my heart ballooned because love was at work. Because he knew there are two ways to go. And he is looking around and thinking about our world and wondering which way will we choose. The good news about Jesus is to be good news for everyone while simultaneously being disruptive to all things empire. This news is good news to the shepherds who were on the bottom of the social ladder, who uh, we read about in Luke 2, 8 to 18. It's good news to non-Jews and foreigners, which we read about in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, with the astronomers slash magi traveling to worship this Jesus. All of this is a response to the question, why do the biblical writers use the same verbiage and language as Rome? Because Jesus and Caesar are two very different kinds of kings. Caesar brought about peace through violence. Jesus didn't just bring about peace. He was peace incarnate. Empire and the kingdom of God are two very different kinds of kingdoms, each manifested in two very different kinds of ways. One wields the sword to inflict fear and violence, and one absorbs the sword to manifest hope and joy through sacrificial love. So why use the same phrases and titles? Because we can't have both. We must choose one.
People then and people now want to dabble in both. I'll have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of empire. A lot of people view Jesus as their pass into heaven, you know, later after death. But Christmas is about the embodiment, the flesh birth of a way of life for right here, right now, today. Which transcends the now and also dances into the eternal. Empire whispers in our ear, more, more power, more conquering, more controlling, more land, more wealth, more winning at all cost, more. Which way will we choose? The way of Caesar and empire, which is excessive accumulation and domination, or the way of Jesus embodying peace by loving God and loving neighbor. I pray that our ears are unstopped and we could hear the language of Caesar and empire that is all around us, pleading for more guns, bigger guns, bigger bombs, more money, more power, crush and win at all cost. And amidst the empty and lonely ways of empire that we would be a people who choose to step into conversations that move to restoration, belonging, forgiveness, healing, love of neighbor and the least of these because this is the way of the kingdom of heaven that is the kingdom of Jesus. This was the invitation over 2,000 years ago, and it's the same invitation for you and I today. The elation and unwrapping the unbreakable gift of joy is found on the other side of wrestling with the divine. This is the explosion of love born to us in Christmas. A new way to live is born to us and for us. It is a rethinking of our world and our way in the world. It changes our way in conversation, in the way we consume, in the way we do our jobs and the jobs we may hold. It is our way of being a neighbor. And it is our way of choosing invitation rather than isolation. Now for me, I find the artist and the poet of much help in inviting us to see how this is not just a story that is born unto us, but is meant to be a story born in us. So, in a world that not only continues to follow, but is also very blatant in their admiration of the way of Caesar and empire, which is dependent on the sword, may the truth in the way of Christ be birthed in us, ever reminding us that the eternal victory is indebted to the way of the cross, where force and violence were dissolved and forever defeated. 
So a poem. Next slide. It was a time like this, war and tumult of war, a horror in the air. Hungry yawned the abyss, and yet there came the star and the child most wonderfully there. It was a time like this of fear and lust for power, license and greed and blight, and yet the prince of bliss came into the darkest hour in quiet and silent night. And in a time like this, how celebrate his birth when all things fall apart? Ah, wonderful it is with no room on the earth. The stable is our heart. Even when you do not see love and peace around you, may your heart be the place that love and peace cradle the love and peace of the divine. May it be in us, born on this day, the Christ love and the Christ peace that others will be able to taste and see Catch the aroma, feel the embrace of this love and peace that is still at work today in and through us. Gracious God, we see around us the conflict We hear around us the mantras of Caesar, the rhetoric of empire. And yet, God, I bless you for this season in which we celebrate the arrival, the birth, of a new way to be human. You loved the world so much that you came among us as one of us to touch and heal the broken. To provide food for the hungry. Love to the lonely. Compassion to us when we are crippled physically, emotionally, mentally. You love us in the midst of it all. May we absorb it, hear it, experience it, taste it, touch it, and embody it for a world that is hungry for something other than empire. I bless you, God, for loving us so well. May our hearts be open now to hear from you. Amen. 
Amen. Let's stand together as we continue in worship.